So this afternoon we're going to study Luke chapter 7 verses 1 to 10. Luke chapter 7 verses 1 to 10. So we'll pray and then we'll read that passage. Please join me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we pray, Father, that you would speak to us from your word this day, that by the power of your spirit, your word would be effective and powerful in our lives. Please help me as I speak to speak not according to the wisdom of men, not according to the foolish imaginations of a man, but, Father, may I speak with wisdom from heaven by the power of your spirit, and may we all be enabled to receive the word for that which it is, the very word of God. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Luke chapter 7, and we're starting at verse 1. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Amen. And may God bless that word to us. In Australia, we have a descriptive of a certain kind of man. And I'm sure you'll have heard it as soon as I say it. But what I want you to think about is when I say it, do you automatically assume that this would be a good man or a bad man? What if I said to you that so-and-so, we'll use the standard name, John Smith, is a hard man? How do you hear that? John Smith is a hard man. Do you automatically assume that I'm talking about a good guy or a bad guy? Am I speaking of someone who's to be trusted and trustworthy or am I speaking of someone of whom you should be careful and cautious. I think one of the great failings of the church in modern day Australia is that we pretty much have come to the point where we assume that someone whom you might call a hard man is not a good hard man, but is actually a bad hard man, a hard man whom you cannot trust. But the simple fact of the matter is, that the man who is um, sharing centre stage here with Jesus in this passage could only be what we would call a hard man. He's a centurion in the Roman army. And basically the stock in trade that he deals with as a centurion in the Roman army is death. Death to the enemies of Rome and the discipline of death to the soldiers under his care. Centurions are variously described as something like the cross between a sergeant, between a sergeant major and a captain. 
It's it's basically the highest rank of an enlisted or common man in the Roman Imperial Army. Um, centurions, the, the, the very word itself, centurion, implies the head of a 100. Now, there are rankings and gradings in the centurions. It does not mean that there might literally be a roll call of a 100 that must answer to him, but you're getting the idea. He's, he is at the head of a 100. And centur- the, one of the main characters that a centur- centurion was chosen for when promoted out of the ranks was that he was the kind of man that would not take a backwards or sidewards step in a battle. Winning or losing, he stands on his piece of ground and he fights and he does not surrender. That's the kind of man that becomes a centurion. A highly disciplined soldier who obeys the orders that he's given to the cost of death, either for those whom he's killing or for those who are killing him to the cost of his own death. As I've said, by definition, we have to call this man a hard man. But the scripture tells us that he's not a bad hard man and that he's not a wicked hard man. This is actually a faithful and believing hard man. And nowhere was he sent the message that, look, if you are going to be a faithful and believing man, well, you've just got to step back. You've got to come out of the army. You've got to cease to be a soldier under the discipline of the army. You've got to cease to be a man who imposes discipline upon the men around you. Nowhere was he told that he was pursuing a career that he could not continue to pursue as a believing man and as a Christian man. This is a tough man. As I said, this is a hard man. His whole life was a life of discipline and obedience. And he's stationed at Capernaum, which is basically the area where Rome, where the Roman governors ruled Judah from. It was built as a, as a um, administrative city by the side of Lake Galilee. But we immediately see that there, there are things in the text that tell us that this hard, disciplined, fighting man is not a bad man, he's a good man. And the very first thing we see is that in verse 2, now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. Okay, first of all, the word servant it's too strong. It's too soft, I meant to say. It's too soft. It's the word for slave. The centurion had a slave. In that day, people had slaves. The centurion may well have had a slave by taking that slave in battle. And yet, no, let me just further, further say one thing further. In terms of legal standing, that slave had absolutely no rights apart from that which his master was willing to bestow upon him. We'll assume it was a male slave. That slave had no rights, no identity, apart from that which his master was willing to give him. If the centurion had chosen simply to kill him because he did not want the expense of caring for a sick man, there is absolutely no legal comeback. That's the, that's the role and the value of a slave. 
in terms of Roman society. The slave was highly valued, esteemed, respected. The centurion did not regard the slave as less than human, did not regard the slave as unimportant. Now, all sorts of people could be slaves. Educated men and teachers would often make themselves slaves for the protection and the benefit that it gave and teach the children of their owner. He was highly valued. The centurion does not see himself as so superior to this man that the man was without value. Verse 3, when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. Now we can we, we need to break that down a little bit. First of all, the religious leaders of the area considered this man to be a worthy man. They praised him to Jesus. This is a good man. This is a man who loves our nation. Why would a man love the nation of the Jews at this time? I mean, the the average Roman considers them to be a troublesome pack of pests with their exclusive one only God, of which which was not represented by any statue in any temple, who 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 basically through being um, whining troublemaking pests got themselves an exemption so that they don't have to worship Roman gods. You know that the Jews were not highly regarded people, yet this man who, first of all, has the compassion and the empathy to love one who is a slave also loves the Jewish nation. And the answer there is, well, if you're looking for the church in that day, in that time, if you're looking where the people of God are gathered, you'll find them amongst the Israelites. You'll find them in the province of Palestine. You'll find them amongst the Jews. So why does he love them? Because that's where he finds the true believers. That's where he finds the church. And so he loves the nation for all its faults, for all its weaknesses. And basically the accusation of Jesus in the Gospels is that he has come to what on the whole is an apostate nation. He doesn't say he never found any believers in Israel, but he has come to basically an unbelieving nation that is trusting in works of merit by which they suppose that they put God in their debt. Okay, it's not a faultless, wonderful gathering of people. Yet, because this is where he finds the faith and because this is where he finds the truth, he loves the nation. And it would be a good thing for we who are Christians. Where we find faith in practice, where we find the truth being taught, there we ought to set our love. We ought to love that place. And so I'm sure you can already see what I'm getting at. We ought to love God's church. It has no claim to perfection. Not one of us individually nor put us together as a collective have any claim to any kind of perfection. We have perfect redemption in Christ. But as a gathering of people, we have no claim whatsoever to perfection. You know, there are so many old sayings that are just so true. If you find the perfect church, don't join it. You'll ruin it. 
you know, the church is filled with hypocrites. You might as well go along yourself then. There's always room for another, etc., etc. Ultimately, anyone who truly loves the Lord Jesus loves the church of the Lord Jesus because the visible church is where the true church is found. And that's not to say that any church is perfect and that's not to say that any church has 100% 100% regenerate membership. How could we know that? How could you know that about anyone? How could you know that about any gathering of people? But the visible church is the nation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, if it's enough that a centurion can love the nation of the Jews with all of its faults and its warts and its troubles, how is it that anyone who claims to be a Christian cannot love the visible body of Christ, which is the church? Sometimes we learn these things the hard way, but it's the truth. He loves our nation and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. And I wonder what he was expecting to find. I, you know that I do not believe that in his humanity, Jesus knew everything about everyone at every given moment of time. I believe he had incredible help from the Holy Spirit that gave him incredible insight at various times in his life. But he was still truly human. And, it, and it's Jesus who says that he's amazed when he finds a faithful man. If you're amazed, that implies you're surprised. You found something where you weren't expecting to find it. You found beauty where you thought was ugliness. He was amazed, but we'll get to that a bit later. Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends. So the centurion himself has not yet come to Jesus. Now, I'll just make a little point here just by way of explanation. If we were to read the parallel in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew writes it as though the centurion himself speaks in person to Jesus. Matthew presents this story in far fewer words. He cuts it down to something much shorter. And always remember that in that day and age, within Jewish culture, if someone spoke on behalf of their master, it was considered that the master himself had spoken. So in Matthew, in the way that Matthew wrote it, it's not inaccurate, it's not wrong, it's just Luke is giving us more t- details than Matthew felt were necessary. He sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. This is a complete reversal of what the Jews had said about him. The Jews say he is worthy to have you do this for him. And the centurion says, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. So this man who has faith, this man who I've called a hard man, a man of discipline and warfare, First of all, he's hardest upon himself. If there is such a thing as a good hard man, and I'm saying that there is such a thing as a man who is both good and a man who is a hard man, that hard man imposes that discipline first of all and most thoroughly upon himself and understands most completely his own failings to live up to the code which he has expected to to keep. Lord, I am not worthy. I'm sure Jesus was suddenly getting really interested when he heard those words. This man is worthy. This man is worthy. And he's wondering to to himself concerning the Jews that said it. I wonder what 
I wonder what you know kind of character you have, and I wonder how much you know about worthiness. What kind of man would you say is a worthy man? Well, it turns out this time they've described a man to Jesus that is the kind of man that Jesus is looking for. Because the man sends a message, do not trouble yourself for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. This man was humbled. He was hard upon himself and he was humbled. We've already read, haven't we, um, about taking the, the beam from your own eye before you worry about the speck that's in your brother's eye. You see, this man has looked at himself and seen the beam in his own eye. And he's been humbled. He's seen what kind of man Jesus was expecting. Now, whether or not he ever heard that sermon, I don't know. I'm, I'm not saying that he has or that he hasn't. But the Holy Spirit, who is speaking through Jesus in the sermon, is the same Holy Spirit who has convicted and converted this Roman centurion and made him what the Jews would have called at that time a God-fearer. When the Jew used the phrase a God-fearer, the Jew was speaking of a Gentile who had come to faith in their God, who had come to faith in Yahweh as he had revealed himself in the Jewish scriptures. This man was a converted God-fearer. And now we realise that this man knows something about Jesus. He knows something about the Lord Jesus and he believes what he knows. He submits to what he knows. Where has he heard these things? I don't know. Was he standing at the edge of the crowd and heard a sermon from Jesus? I don't know. Was he somewhere there and witnessed one of the healings that Jesus worked? We don't know. But he knows things about Jesus and he believes things about Jesus. And as far as he's concerned, it is right for him to be in submission to Jesus and not to make any great demands upon Jesus. Naaman the Syrian was very angry, as we read earlier, because the prophet did not come out, take his stand and wave his hand over the place of the infection. Naaman was expecting the song and the dance, and he expected the prophet, who was the spokesman for God, to come into his presence to work a great work. Very angry when he was told, just go and dip in the Jordan seven times, you'll be right. Wasn't impressed. This soldier, I know you don't have to come to my house. I know who you are. And believe me, I am not worthy. I know who you are and I know what you can do. At verse 7, therefore I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. You see, he's ascribing divinity to Jesus. Say the word and let my servant be healed. How was the universe created? God spoke and said. He said the word and it was so. And the, and the prophet Isaiah, when he speaks about the word of God, what does he say? It will not depart from the mouth of God, but that it will accomplish the purpose for which it was sent forth. Say the word. I know who you are. I know what you can do. I don't demand that you come to my house. Believe me, Lord, I am not worthy. And I know this. You only have to speak. You've only got to say, let it be so. And I know it will be so. 
Verse 8, for I too am a man set under authority. And once again, we've got to stop. That's, that's an important parallel or an important analogy. For I too am a man set under authority. Okay, he's a Roman soldier. He has power. He has authority. Why does he have it? Because those above him had given it to him. What could he do with it? Only what those above him have permitted him to do. He could not act on behalf of anyone else other than Imperial Rome, which had set him in this place. Jesus in his humanity was truly human and he was a truly obedient man. And this Roman soldier understood something about the power that Jesus was exercising. He was exercising this power. He was exercising this great authority because he was acting in perfect submission to the God who sent him. Perfect obedience, perfect faithfulness, acting completely according to the will of God. And so the power of God flowed through Jesus and was working through Jesus in, in such a way that it's almost beyond description. It's in the same way that creation was created through Jesus. All things were created through him and without him was not anything made that was made from the Gospel of John. I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. There's, there's a phrase often used by theologians. It's called the church militant. The church militant. They're talking about the church at war. We've been born into an army. When you're born again, you're born into the church. You're born into the body of Christ. You're born into the fellowship of the believers. You're born into the army of God. We become foot soldiers in the kingdom of God. And so for us to do anything in the power of God's Holy Spirit, we do it under authority. How would that authority be expressed? Well, first and foremost, it's expressed in accordance with the word of God. It's expressed through the seniority of the church. It's expressed through the seniority of saints. It's expressed in eldership in an, in an independent church. With soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. You hear what he's saying. He's basically saying this is a military operation. I understand, Lord. You're here at war. You give orders. The orders are obeyed. You only have to speak. This will be done. When Jesus heard these things, verse 9, he marveled at him. We could say he was amazed would be another fair alternative translation. Jesus was amazed. Now, this, as I've already intimated, is, is a point at where Jesus in his humanity did not know all things at all times. In his humanity, he was amazed. Why would he be amazed? Well, first of all, he's walking towards the house of a person who is not a Jew. And yet this person who is not a Jew is exercising faith that is great and is mighty. 
Um, we will look quickly to Matthew chapter 8. And I just want us to look at verse, well, we'll read from verse 10. When Jesus heard this, Matthew chapter 8, verse 10, when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. And then verse 11. Now, this verse Luke does not have. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Stop and think. What's he saying about this Gentile? He's saying that by his faith, through his faith, because this man has this faith, this man shares in the faith of the fathers, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. This man will be feasting with them in the kingdom of heaven. And then he says at verse 12, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So there are sons and there are sons. Do you get what I mean? There are sons of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob who cannot trace their blood back to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And they are sons of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Why? Because they share the faith of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. They believe in the God who speaks things into being. They believe in the God who says that such and such a thing will happen. And it happens. And Jesus sees this man as a son, as a son of Abraham. And then there are sons. There are sons of the kingdom. These people are the, in, in, in the context of Matthew chapter um, 8, verse 12. These people who are the sons of the kingdom are the people who can trace their blood back to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. But they don't share in the faith of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And they don't submit to Jesus who Jesus is, the son of God. He's the son of David. He's the son of man. He's the son of God. He's God, the eternally begotten son of God. There are sons and there are sons. Now, amongst the sons by blood of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, are there those who will be saved and feasting in this one and the same kingdom? And the answer is yes, of course there are. Why? Because they share in the faith of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. It's more important that they share in the faith of their fathers, not that they share in the blood of their fathers. Turning back to the Gospel of Luke in chapter 7. When Jesus heard these things, verse 9, he marveled at him and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And so Jesus uses this man as an example to rebuke the unbelievers that he knew were following him. He understood. In a way, in a way, there are people who are following me only out of bare curiosity. They want to see something amazing happen. They want to see the demon possessed set free. They want to see the leper healed. They want to see some kind of miracle. But they have no faith. They think that God is there for their entertainment. They think that God is there to please them. Whereas this man, in everything that he does, he's acknowledging Jesus. I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. He's a faithful man. 
Why is he a man who loved even a slave? Why is he a man who has humility and is hard upon himself, seeing himself for what he truly is? Why is he a man who has the insight and the understanding to understand what spiritual authority is, how Jesus had that authority and how Jesus was using that authority? How is it that this man had these things and he had these things because God, by the power of his Holy Spirit, had worked faith in this man's heart? And by faith, this man's eyes were opened. He doesn't have these things because he was smart enough to see the truth. There's some very smart people in the world. There are people who are teaching the scriptures even today who don't believe a thing that they're reading. And they can teach about the meanings of words and sometimes by common grace they can find some truth therein, something that might actually truly apply to life in the world today. But they're not faithful. They haven't bent the knee to God. They haven't truly accepted Jesus for who he was. They, ha- they don't have these things through faith. Looking at verse 10, And then those who had been sent returned to the house. They found the servant well. As Jesus said it would be, so it was. As Jesus said it would be, so it was. So let's think about some application that we can make here. The first thing I want us to think about is that faith works within the structure of authority. You know, if you, if, if, if you want to um, walk out and try and perform some miracle off there on your own, go for your life. You won't get anywhere. And if anything supernatural did happen, I'm telling you it's the work of a demon. It's the work of the devil himself. Faith works within the structure of authority. Jesus, as the truly human son of God, God having taken upon himself flesh, the truly obedient son of David, was working these works by the power of God's Holy Spirit under, perfectly under, totally under the authority of God. The way a Christian should always be thinking, and I'm not saying we do think this way, but the way a Christian should always be thinking is that we should be thinking, how can I submit myself more completely to the commandments of God? How can I commit myself more thoroughly to the demands of Jesus? How can I submit myself totally to the authority of God? And, though you know, the question you often get in a youth group, if ever you're teaching in a youth group, how much is enough? How far am I allowed to go? What am I allowed to do? Now, they're not thinking the right way. Let's, let's hope that most people who ask that question are going to come to faith in Jesus. They're going to be made wise. But that's, that's, that's the thinking of a person is, um, who somehow or other, in the end, their thinking works salvation. Whether their thinking works salvation in terms of obtaining salvation or whether their thinking works salvation in terms of maintaining salvation, they're still thinking works salvation. They're not truly loving Jesus and they're not truly loving God and not truly wanting to submit to the commandments of God. They're not truly wanting to practice what the Apostle Paul calls the obedience of faith. Let's think about another possibility or another application, I should say. The disciplined life is in accord with, in accordance with the Christian life, the disciplined life. Now, I'm going to say some hard things here. 
I'll, use, I'll try and always remember to say we. I'm not trying to speak down to us. I'm trying to, to speak honestly to us. How many of our failings are because of our own lack of discipline? How often are we so soft on ourselves that we permit ourselves to slip, to sin, to fall, to stumble, to stray? How often do we fail to be hard enough upon ourselves to truly see ourselves for what we are? And somehow or other, we end up excusing and justifying our weaknesses and our sins. How many of things in our life have the things in our life that we want to be a certain way? For how many of those things is it true that if only we would discipline ourselves, if only we would bring ourselves under discipline, we could actually have and accomplish those things rightly and lawfully with the blessing of God? The modern church. And I say, I'm speaking now about extremes. I don't, when, in, when, whenever anything ends up in an extreme, you can almost guarantee that it's in the wrong. The modern church in general around Australia has almost specialised entirely only in the encouragement and the building up of soft men. Things that are not true indicators of character have been given far too much emphasis. Now, I'm speaking particularly of men. Questions like, is he polite? Well, of course, we should be polite. But just because someone stumbles or makes a mistake doesn't mean that they haven't got the spirit of God within them. Questions like, is he nice? Does he smile enough? Is he compassionate enough? Okay. Have you ever had the conversation where you're talking to someone and this this more often happens with a girl or a woman than it does with a man, but I have heard it from both. But you say, and, and what's your church like? Oh, it's, it's good. It's really good. I really love it there. Oh, good. And um, what's the pastor like? Oh, well, he's loving and he's so gentle and he's such a nice man. All right. How's the teaching? Well, he's, he's a really nice man. Yeah, but is he teaching in the scripture? He's a loving, gentle man. Okay, but are you being fed on the word of God? And they just skip and dance around that as much as they possibly can. You know, I... I know, I understand that a Christian man ought not be a harsh, grating, mindless jerk. I get it. That's not what I'm talking about when I talk about a hard man, a hard, good man. But at the same time, a Christian man ought to be a, be a man who is willing and able to draw a line and fight for it who is willing and able to set his to set his jaw as it were and um battle on whether he's encouraged whether people are with him whether people are not with him he's taken a stand of conscience as set in place by God the holy spirit with the guidance of the scriptures and he will not back down he will not step away 
A Christian man ought be able ought be a man who is indeed able to fight for matters of conscience, for matters of of uh, scriptural importance, and not surrender. There has to be a certain amount of steel in the backbone. Let's have a quick look at the words of the Apostle Paul. I want us to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9 from verse 24. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So Paul gives us his illustration or his example. His example is that an athlete in training to to gain an earthly reward exercises self-control and disciplines himself. That's the way that you get to win. You know, no one wins the premiership who does not train. That's the way you get to the front of the pack, as it were. Now Paul says, take the smaller and apply it to the greater. We're talking talking here now about eternal life. We're talking here now about eternal rewards. I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. When I say that the church needs to be able to produce, to raise up, to strengthen and to encourage hard men, I repeat, I'm not talking about the church needs to be able to turn out hard-faced, greedy, grasping, grating jerks. That's not what I'm saying. But with regards to the men that we raise under the preaching of the word, these should be men who have steel in their backbone. These should be men who understand that they must discipline themselves in order to grow in strength. These should be men who, according to the word of God, understand where the battlefield is and understand that they must fight the battle. And the centurion that we've read about, I'm presenting him as an example of just such a man. He's a compassionate man. He's humble He is humble and he's hard upon himself and he understands the structure of authority and how it works. And so, though I have applied these things mainly to men because in the structure that God has given the church, it is indeed the men who are to lead. Yet even so, for the ladies, the same principles apply. In submission to your husband, in living the life that God has given you to live. Exercise spiritual discipline. Keep yourself in the way. Accept correction. Live under the authority of God and you will grow and you will actually appreciate and love men who do the same. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you and we praise you for your word, the Holy Scriptures. And we pray, Father, 
For I pray, Father, that we who are men here in this gathering, that we indeed would be the men that you would have us to be. Let us not be fools. Let us not be soft. Let us not be effeminate. Help us, Father, to be the men that you would have us to be, obedient to your word, strong where strength is needed, compassionate where compassion is needed. Help us, Father, to know the time and the place for the things that we do. Father, we pray for all present, that all will grow in grace and faith and Christ-likeness. And these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.